All right, John chapter 1, we are on part 19 of our verse-by-verse study in the Gospel of John. And this is really a third part of this verse, and we'll get into what that is here in a second. Start reading in verse 14, we'll go through verse 18. And the Word became flesh, the Word speaking of Christ, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He that comes after me is preferred before me, because he was before me. And out of his fullness we all have received grace for grace, because the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. Now we're going to continue to look at this uh, contrast of Moses' system versus Christ's truth and grace. This is our third message on that particular issue. There's some Believe it or not, I believe some pretty juicy stuff in verse 18. I was thinking that we might be able to get to that this week, but I don't think so. But there's more there than I think that we might realize, and I look forward to getting to that in the coming weeks. What I want us to see a little bit later in the message is how that, we kind of touched on it briefly when we started talking about this, but how Moses' system relates to today's religion, not just those that say they keep the Ten Commandments, but as we spoke of in times past about lower laws or lesser laws, some that would still say, well, this is in place and it's a condition that if you don't do it and do it this way, you're not saved. It's not just the blatant religion of Judaism, which is you know based on the Decalogue, keeping that, and not, not some extreme, like, open works Religions like Roman Catholicism, not just those. Those are very open in their legalism. But I want us to to see the levels of subtlety. And there are, I think it's obvious, there are levels of subtlety in religion. I remember years ago we would look at like TV channels like TBN and you'd just, you'd be talking about, look at what that guy's saying, you know, and it was just blatantly obvious. Benny Hinn, the stuff he does, and Jimmy Swaggart, and and all these people. And now, I, I think as you see people mature, they don't talk as much about those, but they'll talk about those that are like closer to us, that are trying to slip in subtle doctrines, false doctrines that would draw us away from Christ and focus on ourselves rather than Christ. They're still practicing laws to a certain extent, works and conditions. So we'll look into that, how that even those can creep into true gospel churches, and we have to be on guard for that. Now, some people might say, and I've said that before, some people might say, well, Scott, you're, you keep talking about this so much, you're going to cry wolf. Uh, I, I think we don't know the half of it, really, when it comes to these things coming into our group and, and coming in slowly and subtly. The accusation is sometimes 
that we are merely defending a theological system or a, a body of doctrine. If you talk about definitions, terms, and precisions, and, and apologetics, defending the faith, if you talk about that enough, people are going to say, you're just defending a system, and these people don't agree with your system, and you're condemning them. Well, how subtle can it be, for example? How subtle can it be? I'll tell you how subtle it can be. An apostle is sitting at a table with some Gentiles, and some Jewish religious people come in, and the apostle sees those Jews come in, and he quickly moves to a table where there's Jewish religious people, just like the ones that came in. And he's implying, hey, I'm with you. Don't worry about it. And the Gentiles that were believers, he's implying, you're not good enough. You don't do what these guys do in these traditions. I, I'm, he didn't say a word. He moved to another table. And Paul, because of that, you know, this we're going to turn to Acts in a second. Acts 15, this is where the details are talked about in this section. This is what Paul was dealing with in the churches of Galatia. And in Galatians, it talks about how that he, it said that he withstood Peter to the face because Peter was to be blamed. Peter, an apostle, the supposed Pope of Rome, which he wasn't, right? Paul had to say, what are you doing here? You're showing some hypocrisy here in what you're doing. Peter, by grace, was granted repentance from that idea, and he regretted, of course, what he did and corrected the issue and was outspoken about it after that. But that's how subtle it can be, not even speaking a word. It can be, you know, think about it. Today we could uh, be dealing with people in a theological setting and be talking about things and make a doctrinal distinction, and somebody can sneer their face like, what's the big deal about that? Oh, it's the glory of God, that's all. You know what I mean? So... That's how subtle it can be. It can be a move from a table. It can be a roll of the eyes. It can be a sneer of the face. It can be whatever. It can be shunning people. So when you hear, when I hear somebody that comes out explicitly with doctrine and preaches message after message after message and writes articles about it, and if I don't say something about it, that's not subtle anymore. And if I bring it out and bring it to people's attention, they say, oh, you're splitting hairs. No. Now, I'm doing my job. Because if you leave that stuff alone, it will grow and creep in. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So we're not just talking merely about supposed theology and doctrine. I know some people, some people hate those two words, theology and doctrine. But the honor of Christ in the gospel is the issue. You can't do that unless you utilize the tools of doctrine and theology. In other words, you teach people, right, the truth. You teach people the truth. So if we want to be spiritually healthy, and we do, the scripture exhorts us to be spiritually healthy, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to be that and do that, we will be vigilant in guarding the honor of the person and work of Christ. Acts chapter 15, let's go there and look at uh, 
some verses here. Again, what we're doing is contrasting the law of Moses, Moses with his whole system of the Old Covenant, with Christ who brought in grace and truth. Now, again, try to keep your mind open and more of a broad spectrum here to apply, like I had mentioned earlier, some groups and, and, and maybe some groups you had been in in times past, which I think we all had, where we had lower or lesser laws, maybe even the Decalogue was included, but we had conditional works, righteousness, salvation. And these things will also, I think, apply. It's kind of a no-brainer to me that they apply to a certain extent. Acts 15 and verse 1. And certain ones who came down from Judea and taught the brothers, saying, here's what they said, these ones that came down and, and they taught this. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I can stop and I can give example after example after example of what I had mentioned, these lower or lesser laws, conditional ideas of salvation, conditional ideas of perseverance, perseverance not in the gospel, but perseverance in doing certain things. They will say, if you don't persevere in doing certain things, you cannot be saved. That's what lordship salvation is. We we went over that. Verse 2, therefore, dissension, and, and notice this, and not a little disputation, disputing, not a little. It was a bunch, right? Occurring by Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, in other words, they're, they're not going to put up with this. They recognized it. From a distance. They're sharp. They're exercised in the gospel. So they were sensitive to these issues. They appointed Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them to go up into Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. What question? The one in verse 1 about can you be saved without circumcision? Well, Paul and Barnabas are full of boldness and they're just saying, we're not going to put up with this. I use that phrase a lot, probably overuse it, the no-brainer thing. That's what Paul Barnabas says. This is a no-brainer, guys. I don't know what, how in the world this come in here. Can't have it. You can tell from Paul's language in Galatians 1, where he says it's another gospel. Verse 3, and indeed, being set forward by the church, they passed through Phycinia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And they caused great joy to all the brothers. And arriving in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and by the apostles and by the elders. And they declared all things that God had done with them. But some of them, those from the sect of the Pharisees, having believed. Stop right there a second. Having believed. In my notes, I put a question mark here. Not that the scripture is wrong, but the t- we have to get the tone of scripture, what it, how it says what it says. We just looked last week about those, whether or not they can see or they're blind. Remember, and if, you, if you interpret that literally, you're lost in, in, in the interpretation. You have to know that the tone of scripture, it's those that think they can see, right? Now, these people here, these Pharisees, they claimed they believed. But what they believed is what was mentioned in verse 1. They believed that, uh, yeah, Jesus is cool, but you have to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. 
So that's what they believed. When the Luke, the writer of Acts here, says that a sect of the Pharisees having believed, just keep that in mind. It's They were making claims that they believed some of the same things. But we're going to find out after Paul unravels it that they did not believe. They're double-minded. It says that they, they rose up saying it was necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So it wasn't just circumcision. We know in the book of, um, well, here it says to keep the law of Moses, which includes a lot of stuff. But we know in Galatians that food was brought up, dietary issues, and certain days, keeping of days. was They wanted to retain that, which was old covenant, which is done away with. The apostles and the elders, verse 6, were assembled to see about this matter. And after much disputing, Scott, you argue too much. I've been told that. I've been told that by people that told other people that said, don't tell him I said this, but he says you argue too much. Uh, Okay, thank you. (laughs) That's what the apostles did here. To get to the bottom of something, you've got to hash something out. You have to, the word, it means reason. And to be reasonable, you go through and rationally talk about stuff. This doesn't say that you're screaming and yelling and spitting and fighting. It doesn't say that. Today is so, <laughs> it is such an anti-intellectual world we live in today. And ignorance somehow has been raised up as humility. That the fear of getting to the bottom of something, you ha- it has to be implied that you are a hateful person that you're hard to get along with. It's talking about reasoning is all it's talking about. Peter rose up and he said to them, men, brothers, you recognize that from ancient days God chose among us through my mouth and the Gentiles should hear the word and the gospel and believe. And God, who knows their hearts, bore them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as to us, the same way, in other words. No difference. And that he put, here it is again, no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter is ruling out all this goofy bias according to, really, race and tradition. He had the vision, remember, of... uh, the, the cleanness of the of the Gentiles it wasn't about just it wasn't about just food that vision was just not about you know Peter you can eat pork now and shrimp no it's about these people these believers that were part of the church how that the Lord's death had broke down the middle wall of enmity that partition but was between the Jews and Gentiles and has brought them together and to 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 keep that partition between Jews and Gentiles that's a big deal that's bad that's divisiveness. That's actually a form of self-righteousness, and it's uh, uh, racism and, and some kind of traditional bias that doesn't meet up to the measure of the gospel. So there's no difference. Now, therefore, why do you tempt God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Notice this here. A yoke which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear. That's just like last week we looked at a text, I think it was, that says, <laughs> you guys think that you're, you're teachers of the law, you don't know what the law says, you don't keep the law yourself. You're wasting everybody's time. 
That's what false religion does. It requires more out of others than from yourself when it comes to doing. That's a quick way to identify false religion. We believe, verse 11, that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. According to which manner, they also believed. So they're primarily looking at these Jewish people and saying, you guys are off here. They are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. That's the only way that we're saved. That's what they're saying. So there's no difference in sin. And there's no difference in salvation. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's saved the same way. These, this right here is like tentacles of dispensationalism trying to hang out. You know, God's people is chosen. It's Israel only, right? And the apostles were constantly undoing this baloney and straightening it out. Now notice, go back to verse 5. It, it says, the last part here, according to which manner they also believed. Verse 7 is the same, is the way that they believed. Talking about, um, God chose from the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's the, in other words, that's the common way that everybody believes is through the word of the gospel by grace they believe. So, which of course contradicted those that were saying be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And also verse nine, it talks about no difference between them and us purifying their hearts by faith. So again, we could add faith as a term in with gospel, word, grace, belief, faith, same thing. So it's all the same. And these splinter wrong distinctions having to do with pedigree, race, or tradition uh, are out the door now because of the new covenant. Turn to Second Corinthians. I've, I've given all these in uh, chronological orders we've gone through here. Second Corinthians chapter 3 in some more verses that contrast Moses' system with Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7. Right out of the gate here. It's just boom on this term, on the old covenant, what it is. But if the ministry of death, having been engraved in letters of stone, was with glory, it had, it, it had some glory to it, it was glorious, in that, in the Old Covenant, it, there was a lot of detail, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of splendor, and for a lot of years. And there was a lot of emphasis. And when, when um, well, here it is, it's talk, coming up talking about Moses in the glory. So that the sons of Israel should not steadfastly behold the face of Moses because of the glory of his face. Remember when he came back, he was, he was shining which was being done away. Shall not the ministry of the Spirit be with more glory? And if we have time, we can get to it in Hebrews. It shows this very contrast and gives more detail about it. compares the two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, and the glory involved there. It's saying the same thing. Verse 9, For if the ministry of condemnation, before it, in verse 7, is called the ministry of death, I, I mean, how many hints can we get that this is not a good thing to hang out in? 
we sang the song about the curse of the law, and we might get to that text here a little bit later too. So the curse, death, condemnation, hello, <laughs> get out of there. Flee from the wrath of God, right? Flee to Christ. The ministry of condemnation is glorious. Much more does the ministry of righteousness exceed in glory. Mathematical English words that give us an indication of where we're at in our trajectory of thought, of basic logic, which we should have understanding and spiritual understanding about this because we're rehearsed in it. We know the gospel. We have the spirit of God. We have the word of God. And a preponderance of evidence uh, redundantly reminding us of these things. For even that which, verse 10, was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if that which had been done away was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. So again, contrast. Old covenant is done away with. New covenant. Old covenant didn't work because man couldn't do it. It was on purpose set up that way. That was the reason it was set up to show we can't do it. And the glory of the one that could do it and his blood that ratified that covenant involved with promises, conditions on Christ alone is the one. And of course, we know where he's at. We know where he sits. Case closed on that. Hebrews chapter 3. And you know, he sits too, by the way. And remember why he sits? It's finished. Those old covenant priests, they never sat. They always stood up. They kept doing it every year. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle, capital A, talking about Christ, and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, who was faithful to the Father, as, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man, worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built the house has more honor than the house. You just keep seeing it all over the place. All the I don't care who you mention. I don't care if you mention Moses, Abraham, Solomon. There's one greater than all these. Peter, remember? <laughs> Paul had to get on him a little bit. But you remember even before that, Peter, at the Mount of Transfiguration, we looked at this before. And we saw these, uh, these characters, Elijah and Moses, showing up with Christ. And it was kind of an extraordinary thing. And Peter says, let's, let's build three altars. <laughs> this is the same problem. <laughs> there's, there's no comparison. Why are you, and, and we did it in times past before God opened our eyes, why are we looking at these, at these alternate altars that we can build up that would be on co-equal playing ground with Christ? So we get the idea when Christ, he says, you know, Emphatically, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. <laughs> so Christ as a God-man mediator, he shows us that entrance, there's only one way. 
It's through the door, through the door of his cross, and, and he is the door. He himself is the door. Look at chapter 10 of Hebrews. This is a little bit more lengthy reading here, but brought us here for several different purposes. And there's a few uh, a few myths to dispel here. And there's some, uh, I've heard some accusations about some of these things in here. I just want to clear some things up. Again, we're still contrasting Moses, Old Covenant, with New Covenant, Christ, who is the author of grace and truth. Verse 19, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter in into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies having been washed with pure water. So the gospel cleanses our conscience. We have the Holy Spirit and dwells within us and we are regenerated and the word of God is said to wash our minds and make our minds pure. Uh, not only initially, but that is a, a continual uh, means to renew our minds with the washing of the word of God. There is a washing that is said to be of the regeneration of the spirit also. This is not talking about water baptism, by the way. Okay, having said that, he says in verse 23, let us hold fast. Hold firm, in other words, the profession of our faith without wavering. Why? For it is he. He is faithful who promised. That's where we look. We look to his promise. We don't look inside. If we look inside, we waver. If we look to he who promised, we don't waver. And let us consider one another to provoke to love and good works. I know there was a big thing on social media a few months back about whether or not the believer can and is to do good works. Uh, it's a pretty clear verse here, really. One of uh, probably a couple hundred in the New Testament. But that's one of the purposes of meeting together to provoke one another to love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That means when the church gathers together, we're not to forsake that. We're to, we're to take advantage of that and show up for the reasons mentioned so far and the reasons he's about to give. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but in other words, on the contrary, kind of a opposite idea, which would be forsaking. No, we show up, and here's what we do when we show up. We exhort one another to, to what he said before, to provoke one another and to love and good works, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. As judgment day approaches, we know this. The scripture says that evil men shall wax 
worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And if that's the case, along with that trajectory of things getting worse and worse, we should gather and we should exhort one another so much the more with that same increase of evil in the world and lies, we have to exhort one another to keep up with that evil because it's getting worse. We need to not just show up and say, la-di-da, what are we doing today? And just talk about football or um, donuts, and, right? We're to talk about our mainstay, the staple of our diet, the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work, and how that affects our life. What does that do for us? That gives us assurance, and that gives us the, the incentive and the motivation to live out this life of faith because of what he did. Now, I had mentioned about the subtlety of lies that creep in. This whole book here of Hebrews, of course, is a warning about that subtlety, about going back into the Old Covenant in any way, shape, or form. So what he starts to talk about here next, verse 26, is not to be divorced from the reason we meet in verse 25. They cannot be divorced. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now, this is a very famously perverted text that the Armenian will get and make it conditional that if you sin any kind of sin willfully, you've lost your salvation. First of all, I believe all sins are willful. I really do. I don't think there's accidental sins. But I believe, and, and other scholars believe, and, if, and if, this doesn't, if this is not true, then nothing makes sense in the scripture. This is talking about the whole tone of the warning of, of Hebrews, the sin of unbelief, which is going back into the Old Covenant. So there's the warning here throughout, all the way up to chapter 10, verse 26. The whole book is a warning, and it says up to this point. Now, if after I've warned you, Paul kind of did the same thing in Galatians, where he warned about adding circumcision. He says, you know, get off the fence. I've, I've, I've put out the arguments. It's here they are. You know, choose which side you're on. And that's what he's doing here. I've, I've given you these warnings about why the old covenant is not going to work for you all, and how that grace is the only way. Christ is the only way. His cross is sufficient and effectual, and it's finished. And if you go back into something else, then there is no more sacrifice for you. You've rejected the only sacrifice that is the only hope. All others are substandard, and they never worked anyway. Right? The blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. We read that in Hebrews. Do you think salvation was by the law in the Old Covenant? you think anybody kept the law? No, that's it. it's clear that by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in the sight of God. So that's what he's saying here in this verse. If you go back into some substandard system of salvation, whether it be Moses or, or whoever, then you don't, you're not going to have a sacrifice for your sins. Your sins can't be paid for. These are not elect sheep turning into goats. 
This is not showing somebody losing their salvation. It's showing somebody who never did get it in the first place. If they're clinging on to and they persevere in the old covenant, embracing their own righteousness. They, they have not been converted in the first place. As Galatians says, they've fallen from grace. It means they've fallen short from it. They haven't even got up to it yet. They've fallen short of it. They never had it. So that's what this verse is talking about. The willful sin is talking about unbelief, rejecting the Christ of the new covenant. And what is left if you do that, if you go back to the old covenant? The only thing left is a certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He who despised Moses' law died without mercy on the word of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you think, do you suppose that will be thought worthy of punishment to the one who's trampled under the Son of God, who's counted the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified, and unholy thing. That word, the word means common right there. Unholy means common. Like how some of these people talk about common grace. Unholy. Not Consecrated, not distinct, not sanctified or set apart. And has insulted the spirit of grace. Notice, spirit of grace. Not spirit of the law, not spirit of works, not spirit of conditions. Spirit of grace. For we know him who has said, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Yeah, it is. It says in Thessalonians that Christ is going to come back with his mighty angels in fire, taking vengeance on them that believe not God and obey not his gospel. It's saying the same thing right here. So the subtlety of variations of Moses' system is what we have today. But they're always grounded on conditions for salvation. If Satan cannot fool people directly on the doctrine of justification, he will try to affect justification indirectly by making sanctification a condition on the sinner doing it and keeping it up and persevering in it. So there's always levels. Thieves and robbers always come in another way. Christ said in John 10. They try to come in another way to the sheepfold. They climb over, dig under. So we come together as an assembly to be reminded every week that Christ fulfilled all the conditions of the complete salvation that he gives his people. That's pretty much what I mean, we just read it in Hebrews 10. That's what we do. We remind people all the conditions are fulfilled. If we keep reminding people and showing people how that is in the scripture, that all the conditions are fulfilled by Christ, and it's only by grace, and that is the truth, and we accept nothing else, then that's a guard, that's a wall that we've put up not to go back into the death and condemnation and curse that we used to be a part of. So the fact that salvation is conditioned on Christ alone is, is really the, the gospel promise of the new covenant. Go to Romans 7. We're about done. Verse 1. 
Are ye ignorant, brothers? For I speak to those who know the law. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the married woman was bound by law to the living husband. But if the husband is dead, she is set free from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she is married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if the husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress by becoming another man's wife. So, my brothers, you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ, so that you should be married to another. My version says capital A. Christ, in other words. And the redundancy here comes, it says, even to him raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So we have become dead to the law so that we could be married to Christ who raised from the dead. Who, of course, raised us from the dead after we died to the law so that we can be bringers of fruit to God. This is pretty clear that we are free from the law. Another place it talks about how that we are not under law, but under grace. Now, I told some people a few months ago when all this argument was going on that when you're under something, that is language of dominion, right? So we are under the dominion of grace. And that is that has to do with faith that we've been given. I'm going to, I was going to read Romans 8, which is one of my favorite passages, uh, verse 1 through like 17 or something. There's no condemnation. But I want to go, I want to skip a few because we're running out of time. I'm going to go to Galatians 2 and uh, end it up. And we went through Galatians verse by verse. I, I don't remember how many years it was. Five maybe. And it was very profitable. Galatians 2 and verse 16. We'll conclude with this. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. He said that two different ways. And he was redundant. He made contrasts. And he talked about things that oppose one another. And so you wouldn't mistake it. For all flesh, no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. But if while we seek to be justified in Christ, we also were found to be sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? God forbid, or let it never be said. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I confirm myself as a transgressor. For... Through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. If we're going to further stop to say here that we, we always are clear to say that the gospel just doesn't say no law. The gospel says law satisfied. 
It's the difference between life and death, by the way. God must be just when he justifies. This thing of salvation is God-centered and Godward, and it's God first. He must satisfy himself in order to enable himself to be just when he justifies his people. And so there is the display of his attributes there in the cross of his justice, his holiness, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his wrath, his grace, his love, all these things must be harmonious and congruent one with another. And the way that he does that is that in the covenant, the terms and conditions and promises were involved with that. I, I just can't cheat on this thing. We have to do this thing right. Therefore, I need a substitute to satisfy these things that are that are in us as persons, father and son. And we can't be unjust and make the salvation just possible by making the balances of the scale of justice out of kilter. This has to match my character. I'm holy. I can't change. Therefore, I must be righteous. And the standard is perfection all the time, every time. And this is the one that is perfection. And he said he would take on this law to keep it and to pay the penalty of the broken law and satisfy it. Propitiation is what that is. And when he's done, he'll say it's finished. And the reward of that is the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ as the God-man mediator, representative, substitute of his people. That's the distinction of doing this thing right according to the law. This thing is done in truth, in other words. Grace is done in truth. There's no cheating. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I live, yet no longer I, but Christ lives in me. I, I don't identify with, I'm not identified with me anymore. I'm identified in Christ. I have lost my identity. I've counted my even my identity, which was my own righteousness. Let's just be honest about it. It was me, myself, and I. That was my righteousness before. And I have lost that identity. Uh, my old man, my identity, was crucified and done away with when Christ died. And I no longer can look inside and count anything that I do as any of my acceptance before God. It must be... In Christ, my representative. And the life that I live in the flesh, just talk about in a, in a human form with a body. It's not talking about fleshly ideas as it's rejected in other books where it talks about we don't walk in the flesh. It's talking about we just, we're alive. We have a body. We have, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, right? As I live this life in the flesh, I live by faith. The just shall live by faith, right? Toward not inside, but the Son of God. Who are we talking about? The one who loved me and gave himself for me on my behalf, my representative and substitute. I don't frustrate the grace of God or I don't set it aside because if righteousness comes by the law, then that means Christ died in vain. So in other words, if you can get saved or be justified become righteous by keeping the law, then Christ didn't need to die. And we know Christ didn't die in vain. We know that. I mean, why would God make such a big deal about the death of Christ, the centerpiece of the gospel and the centerpiece of his whole preeminent idea of the word of God that Christ died and it was a success? 
and then imply that it was in vain because you found a different way to get in. It can't be. So we know Christ didn't, didn't die in vain. So whether this righteousness that we always talk about is talking about justification or sanctification, neither one is through the law. It's by grace alone because of Christ, what he did. It's conditioned on Christ. He is our righteousness, the Lord our righteousness. I am out of time. I'm not going to do it, but I was going to go to Galatians 3. Some good juicy stuff there. We've heard it before, but it would just add to the, uh, the man. Any questions or comments? Yeah. I love Yeah. You know what the Lord said. But with Peter, it's like he kept on fun. I mean, you know. Yeah. And, um, and you know, the Lord said Satan decided to set you up. So it's clear, you know, at that point. But it's like, did he ever, you know, come around this? You know what I'm saying? I know there's a lot of debate on the timing of Peter's conversion. Okay, so it's just a question of when, when he was converted. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I've heard I've heard things on both ends and uh, I've been tossed back and forth on uh, I mean I I probably have some ideas that are not popular on when it was. And, you know, and I guess the significance of that is, is, is not really, really that important to But you know, it's like when we're doing the Yeah. You know, well I tell you, I tell you what's real popular today and it's really bad because of this. Let me jump from Peter to Spurgeon real quick. You know, Spurgeon has made some uh, tremendously terrible statements that are passed on by preachers. And they're passed on so that people can have an excuse to compromise. And we've gone all over them before. Like Spurgeon looked at Wesley and said that Wesley was so godly and holy that he should have been a 13th apostle. Okay, well, Spurgeon is the prince of preachers, right? That's what they call him. And um, that quote is probably the most often quote I've ever seen by Spurgeon. And it, and it allows generation after generation of generation, those that claim to be Calvinistic, sovereign grace reform, to say that people like Wesley are okay. Are you smarter than Spurgeon? You're going to question this guy that said about Wesley? So the same way with Peter, when he makes some ridiculous judgment or statement, like here, here's an example. Now we know that uh, if you deny the resurrection, you don't believe the gospel, right? How much more important is his death than his resurrection. I mean, we know they're all included, but the focus is on the death, and the resurrection is just fruit of a succeeded death, right? Well, Peter denied his death <laughs> in that one text. So people will look at that, and they'll say, you can be off on the death of Christ. I mean, we, I can't do that there. So I, I say... I don't think Peter was converted until after that. And I know Christ said in one spot, might have been that same sex, it says, and when you're converted. And that word's used kind of flexibly 
there's an idea that we're always being converted. You know what I mean? Not just the one-time thing. So there's a lot of factors in there, I, and I agree with you. It's not like it's the end of the world if we don't nail down a time. But I'm I'm just mentioning reasons why some people look to it and say, hey, and allow themselves to compromise because, see, he said he didn't think Christ was going to die. And I'm thinking, how can you reject the death of Christ and the purpose of why this man was on earth if he didn't come and die, you know? And then even after that, he took the sword out. That was even after that. <laughs> so I believe later on he was cleared up. I would think that after Paul there, what we read today, I would think after that he was, he was pretty, he was going in the right direction. And probably after that he was probably pretty bold. Might be too, you know, Christ hadn't had to die and send the comfort he teaches us. Yeah. 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 I don't know if that answered your question, but I, I do think that uh, Peter was converted after the resurrection of Christ. You know, some people, they talk about also those guys that were walking with Christ on the road to Emmaus or whatever that was. It doesn't say exactly who those people were. I think it says some disciples, which could mean a bunch of different people. They were clueless until Christ got the scripture and said, this is what this means. You know? So, you know, the disciples were immersed in three solid years, day by day with Christ. It doesn't mean that when he says, hey, come follow me, that was when they were converted. That doesn't mean that. And I'm not saying I'm the expert on when it was.